All right, we'll get this show on the road if I could get your attention. I believe this is our seventh lesson. It's going by fast. Out of ten, seven out of ten. So we got three more left after today, three more Mondays. Uh, and so this one is, is also in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, if you have your Bible, electronic device. And this is all about something that uh, uh, most Christians never hear. A lot of, I've never heard too many sermons about this, but it's about uh, judgment, justice. Uh, and I think this movie clip, there's uh, ample justice that Beethoven is going to, going to uh, give out to these crooks. And you'll see that in just a minute. <laughs> justice. <laughs> okay. All right, so in chapter 5, uh, we, last few weeks, have been reading about Paul and all of his persecutions and all the trouble that he's had, and he was on death row, and uh, every day he knows he faces that it, this may be the day that they get him, that, that he dies, and uh, as you know, he eventually died a martyr, martyr's death, and I know he saw that coming and was expecting that. So at the end of chapter 4, he explains that he weathers that storm and that he continues because he has a heavenly perspective. He has a forward-looking perspective into the glory that he's going to receive uh, from God in the resurrection. And then chapter 5, last week we saw in 1 through 8, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection and I know a lot of people have the view of the resurrection being just a spirit or, you know, a ghost-like spirit roaming around uh, in the afterlife. But he's very clear, and the Bible's very clear, it's a bodily resurrection. We had a physical earthly body that uh, is appropriate for this place, for the earth, God's creation. But also, we will receive a heavenly body, a resurrection body, that's eternal and perfect and perfectly suited for heaven as well. And so, he's looking forward to that. And so, now, uh, he turns to, since that is our perspective, since we have, so we have to live in this difficult world with all of its troubles, but our, our perspective is heavenly what do we do now until that happens? What should be our attitude, our outlook? What should we be doing? What should our ambition be? And so historically, when you think of the word, he's going to use the word uh, ambition. You can see here in verse 9, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, he says, because he believes in the bodily resurrection, he says, also we have as our ambition now, he has an ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. That's his ambition. You know, historically we view ambition in a very negative light. You know, when you think of all the great ambitious people like Julius Caesar, you know, he wanted to be the first Roman emperor, and uh, he was so ambitious, and all his friends feared his ambition so much that they murdered him there in the Senate because they feared his ambition would be the ruin of Rome. And you look back at all the historical kings and, and conquerors like Alexander the Great and Xerxes, Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, all of them 
were insanely ambitious. They wanted the power and the money and to be the top dog and, and really rule the world. The Puritan preacher uh, in the House of Commons in England was warning some of the legislators there in England in 1648 about ambition. Thomas Brooks said, Ambition is a secret poison, a hidden plague, the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of envy, the origin of vices, the moth of holiness, the blinder of hearts. It turns medicine into malady and remedies into disease. Wow, that's awesome, isn't it? And uh, in our own time, we think of scandals like Watergate. What was that about? And it just, those scandals prove that blind ambition just causes good people to do bad things. I mean, those men in that Watergate deal who had been servants who, who were actually, you know, their whole life had served this country. Most of them had fought in World War II or Vietnam, and yet their ambition caused them to go practically insane to do all that crazy stuff that they did. One of the guys, John Dean, the White House lawyer, John Dean for Nixon, uh, when he was put in jail, he spent his time writing a book, and the title was Blind Ambition. And that was the point, obviously, of his book, that all these guys were really good people that meant to serve their country. But they were so ambitious that that temporarily overrided their good sense and their morality. They became immoral. They became liars and deceitful. Good patriotic men who served their country well lost their moral compass. Webster's Dictionary defines ambition as a strong desire to achieve or require fame, power, or money. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament warned Israel, but you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. And so, as I said, usually the connotation is negative. But Paul uses it differently. Now in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul makes this statement about his ambition. He's definitely ambitious. But as you read it, you see that his ambition is a noble ambition. It's a noble ambition as opposed to a selfish ambition that all these other characters had. So Paul's goal, he says here in verse 9, is to be pleasing to God, to please God, to make God look good, and to do God's will and give God the glory. To him, life was about serving the Lord and not himself. So you see the contrast then is between the worldly concept of of selfish ambition and the spiritual concept of noble ambition that Paul had. And of course, when you believe in Christ, the expectation is that things will change and you will move from that selfish way of life to serving the Lord, to see yourself now in a different light as a servant of the Lord and not of your own self. And that's what Paul was saying, that that was his ambition was to serve God and glorify him and make the Lord look good for the rest of his life. And then in verse, uh, he's going to go on, verse 10, to say 
not only that, not only do I have that as my ambition, but we've also got this idea that we know is true that after death, in the resurrection, he says, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Literally, the, the Greek word there that we translate, the translators tra translate judgment seat, it says bema. The Greek word is B-E-M-A. And that's, that's an, a, a raised platform that a judge would sit on to mete out justice. So, in verse 11, he says, knowing that that is the truth, that we're going to, to come before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged, Verse 11, therefore we have the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. So coupled with the truth that it's our life after we receive Christ is going to be judged, we also have a certain fear of God because we know what's that going to be like, little old me and you, with all of our imperfections, with all of our struggles, we are going to stand before the, before the glorious throne of the almighty, powerful, living God in all of his holiness and righteousness and glory. Little old me is going to give account of my life. If that doesn't put the fear of God in you, you haven't got any sense. You're going to stand there and give account of yourself? I mean, just think that. He says so... I have that fear of God, Paul says. I don't want to come before him and say, well, I, I, I meant to do something. <laughs> you know, I just didn't have time. I was too busy or I had to do, you know. So Paul says he's got that motivation, knowing that he's going to be judged and also having the fear of God, knowing he's going to appear before God's throne to give an account. So, also, you've got to remember, though, uh, I don't want this to sound like, or Paul doesn't mean it to sound like, you're going to be judged for your sins. You will not be. That's not the issue here. Your sins are forgiven. Christ's atoning work on the cross was fully, 100% effective that your sins are forgiven. So it's not that judgment. It's not a negative judgment. It's purely a judgment of what you did with your life after you were forgiven. So after you come to Christ and your sins have been forgiven based on what He has done, then you come before the Lord and give account of your life from that point on of how you served Him. What you did, your, as He says, your deeds, uh, whether good or bad. So verse 10, again, we read it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed. And so that's the idea of rewarded. Another, that same word could be rewarded. Recompense for his deeds, you know, whatever you did while you were in this body, while you're still alive physically, according to what he has done, whether good or worthless. Your, your translation may, be, may say good or bad, but really uh, better translations probably because it's a, uh, a recompense, as he says, or as this says, or a rewarding of your life. 
He's basically saying, if you did good deeds, you'll be rewarded, but if they were worthless, if they were worthless, then no. <laughs> and we'll talk about that more in just a minute. So all of our sins are forgiven. That's not the issue. We don't have to worry about that. We will not be judged, you know, for what we did uh, wrong before Christ. But we still must stand before Christ in all his power and glory and give an account of how we lived our life for him. So thus, in a sense, our judgment will be about whether we had selfish ambition or noble ambition. So you live your life, everybody's got an agenda. Everybody's working towards something, trying to do different things, active activities. And so this judgment is going to say, well, what was your ambition? To be pleasing to the Lord or to yourself? Was it all about self-gratification or were you serving the Lord and the Lord's people? That, that's the idea there uh, that we're going to have to give an account of. So... When you think of the fear of God, again, imagine standing before Almighty God, who's so holy and so morally superior, all human pride is going to be out the window, you know. Nowadays, you know, when you're trying to promote yourself or, or uh, you know, talk about yourself, you have pride and you say, well, I did this and accomplished that and I've got this and, you know, but then you can forget all that. There's no more pride. I mean, you'll be standing there naked because the Lord can see in your heart. This is not only a judgment of your actions, but a judgment of your thoughts, intentions, and your heart. And there's no way to hide. Now, you know, I can just lie. <laughs> or my favorite is image management. That works pretty well. If I can just convince you that I'm good, it doesn't matter if I am or not, right? Image management. Uh, but that won't work then because the Lord knows your heart. He knows what your motivations were, why you did what you did, where you really are in here within the inner person. So that's the fear that Paul says he has that uh, he'll have to do that, and God will find him empty. But we will not have the, the pride that we have now and not be able to self-justify ourselves or rationalize our life when we stand before God. We will stand before him speechless and in humility and give an account of ourselves. So I understand why he fears the Lord. And understand what he means also uh, to give an account, whether good or bad, or whether good or worthless. Because you're going to actually, in a sense, then suffer loss. You're standing for the Lord, and there's nothing there to reward you for. There's a sense of loss, I think, that none of us want to have. And I think that's the other thing that worries Paul, of course. So, the Bema. The, the Greek word for this uh, judgment seat that the governor would, would sit in uh, that is uh, translated the judgment seat of Christ because Christ will sit there. Historically, uh, in, in Greek society, in Corinth, 
And of course, this is written to the church in Corinth. So this is an image that Paul is laying out there for the church in Corinth. At Corinth, if you go there now and go to the ruins there, there in Greece, it's still there. They found it. They unearthed it right there in the marketplace, right there where they used to do the Corinthian games. There is a raised platform, concrete raised platform, with a stone seat there that they have recovered. And there is an inscription in Greek, the Bema seat. It's there. I saw it. It's there. Uh, and so Paul knew that they would be very familiar with what a Bema seat is because every year at the Corinthian Games, and also they occasionally had the Olympics there, the, the runners and the wrestlers and all the people in all the different athletic contests would compete, and then they would line up for their awards at, at the Bema seat. And so this is a great image for what Paul's talking about, because this is strictly a positive one of doling out rewards to the winners of the races, you see, and whatever the event was. And so he knew they would get the message of what kind of judgment this, this was. Not a negative judgment, but a really a handing out of rewards there. Uh, so Paul used the same metaphor in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 23 as well, and he used the metaphor of a race. He said the Christian life, our life now after Christ, is like a race. We're running to the finish line, which is the resurrection, and now while we're running, we run so as to win. And he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That's, that's his life. And he says, don't you know that those who run in a race all run to win, but only one receives the prize? So you also should run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we run for an imperishable crown. And if you look through the whole New Testament, uh, that idea of being rewarded, the images of being given a crown at the resurrection or rewarded with crowns, uh, and I, think it's, I don't think that's literal. It could be, but I think it's uh, figurative because they, they understand the rewards at these uh, Olympic and Corinthian games that they were all very familiar with. And so... Uh, Paul used that as an image of the rewards they were going to get. And the word he used there uh, typically crowns for like an emperor or king or something. The Greek word is diadems. But the word he uses here is stephanos, which is the word for the laurel wreath that they handed out to the winners of the races and all the different events. So the, they would crown them. They'd line up at the bema seat and the governor or whatever official was there would come and crown them with these laurel wreaths that they would give the, the people who competed. And that was the image that, that Paul was using here of the race and also coming to the Bema seat. There's uh, at least four types of crowns that the New Testament authors throw out in the, in the New Testament. 
uh, that I, it's used a lot more than that, but, the, but 1 Corinthians 9, we see the crown of righteousness that he's looking forward to for service and for finishing well. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, the crown of exaltation for, given for evangelism and leading people to Christ. James 1.12 talks about receiving the crown of life for, for persevering under trials. In chapter 1, Paul's, I mean, uh, the author of James, James, says, uh, Consider it all joy when you persevere under trials. And then he ends up saying, For you'll receive the crown of life for persevering through these difficult trials. God knows the trouble that you've gone through. And then in 1 Peter 5, 4, he talks about receiving the crown of glory. He's talking there to the leaders in the churches, like people who are servant leaders, like elders, deacons, ministers. They will receive the crown of glory for their service. And also, uh, no doubt that there will be many uh, rewards, crowns, for various uh, good deeds, giving, service, etc. So that's kind of the way the New Testament authors look at this rewarding process uh, that we will go through at the Bema Seat Judgment. What is it not? What, would, what could you say the, if you're trying to define it and you're saying, well, tell me more about this Bema Seat Judgment. What is it not? As I said, it's not a judgment on sin. Sin is paid for by Christ. It is not for unbelievers. They won't be there. They have a different judgment. You see that in Revelation 20 called the great white throne judgment for people who don't have Christ as a Savior and have to give an account of their lives without Christ. Uh, and then also it's different from the one that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25. He says when the Son of Man, Jesus, comes back the second coming, he will separate the sheep from the goats. So that's when Christ will separate believers from unbelievers, you see. Uh, it's also not like any of the worldly courts that we're familiar with. Because, you know, in the worldly courts, they're arbitrary, they're slanted, uh, there's favoritism. Uh, you even have bribes. I saw a joke. Uh, one, one judge in a case received two bribes. One from the plaintiff for $10,000 and one from the defendant for $15,000. So the judge said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to return $5,000 to the defendant and now we'll judge the case solely on its merits. And a lot of justice we see, you could say, has relative justice. Uh, I saw this about this guy who was a, uh, <laughs> he was a thief and a bank robber. And when they asked him whether he was guilty, he said no. And they said, well, what's your defense? He justified himself. He actually had written out a code of conduct for thieving. I will not kill anyone. I will take cash and food stamps, no checks. I will only rob at night when no one's there. I won't wear a mask. I won't rob many marts or 7-Elevens. If I get chased by cops on foot, I'll get away. But if I'm chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. 
I will only rob seven months out of the year. Uh, and if I do rob, I will tithe to the church. <laughs> what? And the judge said, well, you certainly have a sense of morality, but it's flawed. <laughs> so he stood before the court. He was not judged by the standards he set for himself, you see. That's what people seem to think. They set standards for themselves and think they'll be judged for that. He was not judged by the standards he'd set for himself, but by the higher law that the state had, had set. So... In the same way, we're going to be judged by God according to God's morality, according to his perspective and what he sees. So it will be a godly justice that he's looking for, not any kind of worldly relative justice. And it also won't be whoever has the best lawyer wins, you know, type deal. And you won't have any more of these trials that are bogus like O.J. Simpson or any of those kind of ridiculous things. It'll be absolute. It'll be according to absolute truth that God alone knows. So the Bema, then what is it? The Bema is a positive judgment that will be absolutely true, transparent. As I said, we can't hide anymore. There's no facades. It'll be transparent, and it will be gracious. It'll be gracious. Nobody will stand before God and say, I deserve all these rewards. You know, whether the, Even Paul won't be able to say that. All the rewards that God gives will be gracious. There'll be gifts that God gives out, you see. So it'll be true, transparent, and gracious in our lives as God sees them. Not as we see them or we judge each other, but as God sees them. Thus, not just your actions, but your thoughts, your motivations, your intentions of your heart. All things will be laid open and bare to the eyes of God. No more image management. No more self-promotion. No more fooling anyone. That will be over. For a great uh, backup passage about the Bema Seat Judgment. If you have your Bibles there, turn one book to the left, hold your finger there, and go to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Paul talks about this very issue, but he gives a different image that's even more expressive, I think. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, Paul is telling the church there, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. When he came to Corinth, when Paul came to Corinth and preached the gospel, and they believed he had laid a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. So in this image, your lives are seen as being built upon a foundation, which is Jesus Christ right? And so now, what are we going to build on our foundation? And this building we build is the image of how are we living and what are we doing for the Lord? Are we pleasing Him? So he says, I laid a, the foundation of Jesus Christ that you believed in, uh, and then you are building on it. And so let each person be careful how he builds on it. 
Are you going to build a shack? Are you going to build a skyscraper? And it will be tested. How so? Like a fire. Again, an image. Probably not literal, but it'll be like a fire. It's like a fire hit a house, and some of the building material was impervious to the fire and survived, and some burned up. So he uses, in verse 12, the building materials. In verse 12, you can see that the good works are seen as gold and silver and precious stones that would survive a fire. But the worthless ones are likened to wood and hay and straw, which would not survive a fire. So the test of fire, which is the judgment of God, would burn those up. So he says in verse 13, each man's work will become evident, will be revealed. For the day, the judgment day, will show it. Because it is to be revealed so as with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. If any man's work which he has built upon the foundation remains, he shall receive a reward, the crowns. But if any man's work is burned up, the wood, hay, and stubble, he shall suffer loss shall suffer loss, but, and this is important, but he himself shall be saved. So you're saved no matter what, but it's going to be, do you come through the fire with rewards or nothing, the loss that you will suffer? So he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So that's the image of the building that we're, our lives are on the foundation of Christ that has been set. He is the foundation, and all that you have done since you believed in Him is the building in that images. And so you have then the images in the judgment of either loss or gain, as the passage puts it. So back to uh, chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians, just to finish this passage, uh, so verse 11, because knowing that that's going to happen, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, and that fear is that reverence, that awe, that respect that you have for him. We persuade men, but we are made manifest or revealed to God. He knows us inside and out, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. I hope you know us as well, how hard we're trying to please God in our efforts with you. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves, and I think that's a shot at the false teachers there in Corinth that were criticizing Paul and commending themselves. And so Paul was saying, we're not commending ourselves like those guys. We're humble about this. We know we're going to stand before God. So he says, we're not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance. So all these false teachers, they look good. They got $10,000 Armani suits. Is that what they cost? I wouldn't know. 
I don't think my wife can testify. I haven't bought a stitch of clothes in 40 years. <laughs> and, and some of these guys over here that know me are going, yeah, we can tell. <laughs> or every time I wear something nice, one of these guys says, obviously uh, you've had a birthday and your wife just gave you that. So it's not about the appearance that these guys are trying to put on, but it will be a judgment. God knows your heart. It's in your, what's in your heart. So verse 13, so again, no image management under God's eyes, his omniscient view. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, and that word is actually crazy, the false teachers were saying, these guys are crazy. They're fanatics. Don't listen to them. And so Paul is using that and saying, if we are crazy fanatics, it is for God and not for ourselves. If we are sound mind, it is for you. We're here to present the gospel and to edify you and build you up and help you grow and mature. You see, Paul's saying. And so, just a few questions that you might have, that I would have. How will we feel about others who are more rewarded than us? You're there at the judgment seat, and you see maybe some person you don't particularly care, didn't care for in the other life, and they're being rewarded greatly, and you're not getting as much stuff, as many crowns. Will you be unhappy about that as you wouldn't here and now? How could we not envy or harbor resentment or feel competitive? You know, life, our life here is all about competition. You competed all from day one to get good, better grades on the athletic teams, everywhere you went, in job place, competing all day, every day. So what will that be like? Will it be real competitive? How could I be joyful watching part of my life's work burn to ashes and counted worthless and selfish? And also, what if my motives are only partially pure or partially selfish? Because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times you look at some of the things you're doing, and there's certainly good in it, but you're kind of thinking, but this is yeah, there's a little selfishness in this, Right? You're supposed to go like this. I don't want to feel alone in this. <laughs> exactly. So I think all of us have a lot of partial good works. So what, what's the deal with that? Well, here's my answer based on this passage and all the others that are about this. We will all desire and rejoice in the truth. For the first time, everything will be transparent. Everything will be laid out as it really is. And so there's no room for, to envy or be jealous because it's truth, because it's real, because it's justice. And we'll be so glad to be in that environment with all the deception and all the nonsense that goes on in this world will be over. And we will agree with God's evalua evaluation that others are worthy and we'll be happy for them. 
Right now, truth is distorted, but then we will rejoice in absolute truth. There'll be no envy. There'll be no jealousy, no competition, no more false pride. You know why? There'll be no stuff to fight over. It's all God's stuff. Now we think it's our stuff, and we got to fight over it, but then we'll realize it's God's stuff. And also we'll realize we're not competing with each other. We're all on the same team. We're on God's team. And we'll realize that. And what a relief. Can you imagine the relief that will be? No more pretending. No more repressed guilt. No more defense mechanisms. No more excuses or rationalizations. Trying to remember what lie you told so you can cover up that lie. That's all over. And the ultimate question will be, which judgment will you be at? <laughs> the Bema seat or the great white throne judgment? What is your ambition? We see Paul's. What is your ambition? Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I just am amazed at the, the truth that we learn in reading what he had to say to them and his motivations. And I pray, Lord, that we would go forth and like Paul, we would desire to live our lives pleasing to you and serving you because we know it's all about you and it's all about your glory. And we thank you with all our heart for having Christ come to save us from our sins so that we won't have to stand at the great white throne judgment. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. amen. Yay. <laughs>